It's 4 o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Yeah, baby. Woohoo! <laughs> Uh, welcome to the big show, everybody. I'd like to introduce you to our special guest, a true music library pioneer, Mr. Mark Ferrari. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Michael, and uh, hello to everybody out there in Taxiland. I'm, I'm really happy to be able to uh, to be here uh, with everybody today. Oh, and, thanks for uh, wishing everybody the best for the holidays. Obviously, this has been a, a year for the ages for everybody, and. Uh, Obviously, hoping uh, 2021 uh, uh, gets us to gets us back to where we we were, or a little closer to where we were. Uh, yeah, if, sure. it, if it's any worse, it'll be really scary. Yeah, it's, it's been a hell of a year for sure. <laughs> it really has been, man. It's it's kind of exhausting and depressing now with all these businesses shutting down again, restaurants closing. Uh, man, I, I did hear about an hour ago though that they finally signed a. Uh, uh, financial relief bill and checks are going to start going out next week okay well that's, yeah. that's awesome news uh, you know unfortunately uh musicians uh musicians are really getting hurt uh you know with this whole yeah. whole issue i have so many friends that are think they're uh bulk of their living touring and obviously they've just been decimated this year and there's you know i'm really hoping that uh we get we get back to some of the live uh concert experiences in 2021 uh, and obviously that depends on a lot of things, right? So, but unfortunately musicians have really, really taken it. Uh, it's been really tough on musicians. It's tough to be a musician to begin with, you know, making a living as either a touring musician or a play or a, you know, a composing, you know, musician or it, it's, it's, it's tough being a musician. So ho hopefully uh, again, 2021 sees us uh, uh, getting back to where we need to be. Yeah, uh, you know, if you're a touring musician, it's hard to get any uh, f anything from the Paycheck Pro Protection Program, the PPP loans. So basically, at best, you're going to get unemployment. Um, but you know, if you're a small business musician, you're you're screwed. Absolutely. Anyway, uh, um, on, on to happier stuff. Yes. Um, can you uh, move to your right about three inches, just so I can get you a little centered? There you go. Perfect. Okay. All right. So uh, anyway, Mark and I have been friends for, I don't know, 20, 25 years now. Uh, we kind of grew up in the industry together, and he was the founder of a great music library named Master Source, which he started around 1992, same year that I started Taxi. And what makes him a pioneer is that, to the best of my knowledge, he started the first music library that built its catalog with music primarily from independent musicians. Prior to that, the majority of music in libraries was created by legit composers that, who specifically composed for libraries. They would create demos, they would submit them to the music library executives, and then the executives would pick the tracks they liked best and say, okay, get some charts written for these things, and then they would bring in session players in a real studio like Ocean Way, and they would do like a week of rhythm tracks, and then a week of horn and string overdubs, and it all sounded very pro, but it sounded homogenous and I think that's you know why the people called it canned music because it was factory like and it was canned and then uh, all of a sudden uh, along comes this guy Mark Ferrari and uh, I'm going to tell you about that in a minute but first I want to talk about the fact that we are in the presence of a true rock star before he got into the music library business um, Mark was in three bands um, 
got to turn my page here. He was in Keel, which was like his primary band. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Cold Sweat and Medicine Wheel back in the 80s and the early 90s. Um, he played clubs on Sunset Strip. That had to be a blast. He toured the world. He used lots of hairspray and probably some makeup. <laughs> had the whole rock star image, which he still does, as you can see, and likely took part in some awesome backstage debauchery, which we'll leave out of this episode because I know sometimes some of the viewers have kids in the room, so we don't want the kids to hear about what happened backstage or after the show. But uh, Sorry, I didn't know you then. <laughs> so give me some backstory on how you became, uh, you know, Mark Ferrari, guitar rock god in, in, in these bands. You know, where well, did you grow up and how did you get into this whole thing? Where did I grow up? Some people still think I haven't grown up yet. But uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm from Western New York, uh, Buffalo, Buffalo, Rochester, New York area. So that's where I went to high school. And... Uh, made my way out to uh, California by 1984, but I, but I've been you know music has been my passion since I was nine years old. You know when I first picked up my the, the first guitar when I was nine years old, I was captivated. That you know I was uh, very high strung as a kid, very rambunctious. Uh, I remember very clearly the day that I first was introduced to the guitar because I was uh, my parents had gone over to visit some cousins and I was running around the house being my usual. Uh, mile a minute self and uh, my mom saw that uh, there was a guitar in the room that my cousin had gave me the guitar and it, it just automatically just shut me up I was just fascinated by this thing that, <laughs> you know I could I could make noise with it and uh, uh, so that was my first introduction to the guitar uh, when I was nine years old and it, it, it just became my passion um, by the time I was 14, I was going to concerts, and uh, the first concert I saw in 1976 was Kiss. And um, from that moment on, I knew that that's what I wanted to do with, with my life. I wanted to be up on stage and uh, all the lights and all the amps and you know the crowd and everything. I didn't know how I was, was going to get there, but um, I knew what I wanted to do at a very early age. And... So that was that was that was the fuel for my fire, you know. That was um, my passion for music, uh, very early on, and just just staying with it and following my dreams. I, I moved to Boston when I was 18. I graduated high school. A lot of people don't know this, but I actually was my class salutatorian. I graduated. Really? I graduated second in my class with a 96.5 grade point average, and I actually earned a four-year scholarship uh, in New York. There's a uh, they had a region scholar a scholarship, which I could have used to attend any state school in New York, and I put that on hold to go join a rock band in Boston and wash dishes. And uh, so my my folks weren't uh, they were kind of scratching their head as to you know why I would want to do that, but I was following my dream, and to their credit, they allowed me to do that. You know, they always supported me, and um, you know, I never never borrowed money from them as I was and as starving and struggling as I was in those lean years, I never borrowed money from them. But um, so I moved out to California in early 84 uh, and things happened pretty quickly for me once I got out here. I uh, actually moved out here to join three other guys in my cover band in Boston. Our, our game plan was to move the whole band out to California and, you know, get, get a record deal and, you know, you know become stars. But uh, as soon as I moved out here, 
those three guys moved back. <laughs> they moved back about later. They ran out of money, and you know we're missing their mommies and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I, I was not, uh, I was not moving back. <laughs> you know, I stuck it out, and I got introduced to Ron Keel uh, about two months after I moved out to Los Angeles. And um, Ron Keel was already had already made a name for himself in Los Angeles. He uh, had the band Steeler that was headlining clubs, and uh, you know, like even like Metallica opened up for Steeler. You know, big bands opened up for Steeler back in the day, uh, but Steeler never got a deal, um, even though they they hmm. made a record for Mike Varney's uh, Trapno Records uh, with Ingve Malmsteen on guitar. Uh, you know, Ron Ron Keel wow. actually. Ron Keel brought Ingve Malmsteen over from Sweden. It arranged for his uh, flight, you know, took care of his visa, put him up, the whole thing. Um, but he didn't, uh, Ingve and Ron didn't last too long together, and Steeler was a revolving door of musicians. And so finally, Ron decided to just kind of reboot, you know, kind of bury, bury the Steeler dog and uh, reboot his keel. And so I actually was the first, uh, I was the first guitar player he hired at Keel. And um, it all happened pretty quickly. I got in that band in March of 84. We wound up doing our first album for Mike Varney in June of 84. And then two months later, we got signed to Gold Mountain Records and started the Right to Rock album with Gene Simmons in wow. August of 84. So we actually recorded two albums in the space of three months. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, and our album came out in 1985, January of 85. And, uh, Keel was voted best new band in three out of the four top uh, rock magazines in 1985, uh, including Rock Scene, uh, Metal Edge, and Circus Magazine, which is like the big, the big one. So, yeah, things happened pretty quickly for me with Keel uh, once uh, once I'd moved out here. And so Keel uh, was a four-year run for me, 1984 to 88. And in 88, I actually left Keel. I started another band which uh, after a couple of name changes became Cold Sweat, which released an album in 1990 uh, on MCA Records. And we did a fair amount of touring that year on that record. Uh, but unfortunately, that was kind of when musical tastes were starting to shift. The grunge movement was starting to happen. And there really was a proliferation of hair metal bands by 1980. There was just dozens of them. Uh, and I'll be the first to admit that you know a lot of them started to kind of sound the same, kind of look the same. And when the grunge guys hit, it was a breath of fresh air, you know. Um, so during the years that the grunge era was uh, prevalent, I was I was a pariah. I might as well have had leprosy because nobody wanted to touch commercial hard rock guys. So why, but, why didn't you, uh, like, throw on a flannel shirt, some well, Doc Martens, and just change I, your uh, act? <laughs> I, that wasn't me, you know. I, I'm dyed in the wool. You know, commercial hard rock. I'm a you know a child of the '70s. You know, all the great '70s bands are what I grew up listening to and were influenced by. And I, it just would have been a fallacy for me to cut my hair or you know start wearing right. Doc Martens and plaid and you know looking droopy and sad and you know it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't me. However, when one door closes, sometimes another one opens. So this is where we can segue into the master source story. by the way also in this era was wayne's world you didn't mention my oh uh, yeah i my, i think my i movie. did 
my big my big movie appearance in the Wayne's World movie. So yeah, yeah and both of them. I both think I them, mentioned yeah. it in the email promo that went out. Uh, but you're right. Yeah, how did that yeah. happen? Well, so that happened because Keel did a video with Penelope Spheris, who was the director of Wayne's World One. Right. We did a we had a song on a soundtrack for one of her previous movies. The movie was called Dudes. Uh, you might be able to rent it. Uh, John Cryer uh, is in there. He's went on to become a pretty big TV star. Um, but we had the leadoff single from the album, and we got to do a video with Penelope Spheris, and I stayed in touch with her. And because uh, she, she was, and still is a big a big rock rock chick. She's a she's matter of fact, she was actually in a, she she was an A and R person over at MCA for a while. But uh, so I stayed in touch with her and, you know, would see her out of clubs and everything. And then, you know, I read somewhere that she was uh, going to be directing the new Wayne's World movie. And by that time, I already kind of dipped my toe into licensing songs to film and TV. And I originally called her up to say, hey, you know what? If you need any background music, you know, for the film, I, I got a ton of stuff that you could license very quickly, very easily. He said, well, I don't know about that, but I actually need a guitar player for the film. What are you doing this summer? And I said, well, <laughs> I'm doing Wayne's World. So, <laughs> it was a hell of an experience. Uh, we Wayne's World won. The band had a lot more prevalent uh, participation. We were in about five or six scenes in Wayne's World won. And it was just an amazing experience, you know, uh, being around all that talent, you know. Uh, Dana Carvey, Mike Myers, uh, Brian Doyle Murray, uh, you know, you know, Rob Lowe. He was funny. You know, Wayne's World One, Wayne's World Two. When they had Wayne Stock, was a was great, man. It was like four or five days shooting out at Galamigos uh, Ranch, and uh, Peter Frampton was there. He was originally supposed to be in the film. I don't know why he wasn't, but uh, hanging out with him and Errol Smith, my heroes, Errol Smith. You know. Um, and Chris Farley was uh, hanging around the whole Wayne's World uh, 2 set, you know, it was an amazing experience. Wow, uh, like it. Yeah, so uh, party on, everybody. Uh, <laughs> hey, I want to know, why yeah. does Rob Lowe never look like he ages? That guy looks like he's aged about six years and about 30 years. Mm -hmm. I don't know what his secret is, but whatever his, he's eating or yeah, taking, I want something. Good, good genetics, I guess, or, uh, you know, good dermatologist, maybe. We don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Who knows? But he, he, was, uh, he was a friendly guy, and uh, I did uh, many scenes with him because, you know, he was a manager in Wayne's World 1, and uh, so he was, you know, he, he was in a lot of the scenes that the band was in, so. Yeah. Yeah. So it, yeah. once you started, you know, you got some stuff licensed. How did yeah. you uh, figure out that you wanted to start a library? Did you even know what a library was when you first started licensing? Well, I, I knew I was kind of I, I was aware of like, you know, movie and TV licensing because Keel actually had a couple of songs that were licensed for film. So, you know, we had, you know, we had that uh, I had that experience with that. But um I knew, I knew what music libraries were, but if, you know, we're talking about rolling back to like 1991, 1992, music libraries were much different, you know, yeah. now they're all encompassing animals that are producing music that is every bit as good as major label recordings. But back then, you know, back in the early nineties, there were music libraries, but they were, but as you mentioned earlier, they were uh, mostly cue based they were not song based but they were cues they you know if you want right. to 
you know, jazz music, yeah, they had, they had, you know, libraries had, you know, stuff that was generically similar to, to some of the artists there. But, but back in the early 90s, also, the quality of these recordings was not great. You know, it was very chintzy sounding. So, you know, the, the big li- libraries back then, Jim Long, you know, of course, uh, st- he, who started first Calm. I got my first Calm uh, uh, sweaty on here because uh, Master Source is now part of the first Calm library. But but Jim was one of the pioneers, and he had Sam Trust with Killer Tracks, Damn. and he had Holy George. I don't even know if, what happened to his library, but I remember like in the early '90s, Holy George was like one of the the big players, and he had a listening room in Hollywood where music supervisors or wow. film editors could come and listen in a tape <laughs> room to a cues, you know. I know, it's, it's comical now to, to, to see how far we've come from, from that point. Um, but in answer to your question, I started in the early 90s, I started getting some of my songs placed in shows. I had friends of mine that were working had friends that were working at grips, you know, or assistant coffee makers, uh, you know, on some of these films or TV shows. And back then, again, we, we, we talk about music supervisors. You hear the word music supervisor used a lot these days. But back in the early 90s, there really wasn't a lot of people who were truly music supervisors. It, it was it was a, uh, you know, it was a role that had yet to be developed. Yeah, I think Maureen, Maureen Crow actually had a lot to do with kind of codifying what the yeah. role and the title of music supervisor well, was. Well, Maureen Crow was the music supervisor on Wayne's World. Wayne's World One. Boy, she's energetic, isn't she? Yeah. That woman, yeah. man, she works like twenty-three hours a day. Absolutely. So, um, I started getting some songs of mine placed in B movies. You know, where I had friends of mine that were working on the films, and you know. They had the ear of the director. The director you know, would tell the long-haired uh, coffee uh, maker to go find me some rock music for this scene, right? And so that's how a couple of the, the early uses happened. We're, we're friends of mine that were working on these films. And they would say, you know what? Uh, we, we, we have a bar scene, you know, in this film. The director wants me to find some rock music for that. I know you got some demos hanging around, so let me hear a couple of these things. And sure enough, you know, they'd – They'd use, you know, they'd use my music and um, give me a couple hundred bucks and screen credit, which was nice. But the yeah. more important thing is I got an idea. That was that was the most important thing I got out of it was the idea. Hmm. You know, I just made a couple hundred bucks here. And, you know, back then I was working, you know, telephone gigs like musicians used to do to you know, selling pencils or advertising <laughs> space or whatever it was, you know, telephone gig. And I was making you know, $200 or $500 a week, whatever it was, you know, just to kind of get by. And here I made the same amount of money, you know, just allowing somebody to use a piece of my music that already existed, you know? So then I thought, well, if I did this once, maybe I could do it again. Maybe there's another film that needs another piece of rock music. And it started out, I was the rock guy, you know, I was the guy to come for, for rock music, you know? And then I started getting requests for, country or latin or dance or r&b or rap or anything else that was and i was like you know what let me get back to you i'll get back Mark, to you're getting yeah. out you're getting out of frame a little bit can you oh, either okay. move there you go perfect stay right there it's funny because i look in frame where i am but uh, right i, I know 
<laughs> so it started out licensing rock stuff that I had, you know, my my own demos, right? But yeah. then when I got asked for a piece of country music, it's like, I don't have a, I don't have any country demos right now. Let me circle back to you. Let me let me get back to you, right? So that's where Master Source. It wasn't even called Master Source back then. Master Source was a few years later that I, you know, decided on that name, Master Source. But then it was trying to find uh, quickly material that could be easily licensed, and that's when I started going out to friends. You know. Uh, I had friends of mine that played in country bands and Ron Keel actually, uh, uh, you know, he segued into be, to becoming Ronnie Lee Keel in the early nineties and he had <laughs> a couple of country bands. And so, yeah, I was licensing, you know, his music uh, early on. So then it became, as I mentioned, you know, people asking me for different types of music and I, I never wanted to say no. I never wanted to say no to somebody who's like, let me get back to you. Okay. So let's also roll the clock back to the early 90s. The problem with licensing popular music back then is that it was slow and it was expensive. Okay, Back in the early 90s, if you were a filmmaker and you wanted a piece of music for your film, let's say you had to have, uh, you had to have the latest ACDC song or Van Halen song or whatever it was, you know, it was going to take you. It was going to take a long time to get the rights cleared for both the publishing and the master, and it was going to cost you a fortune. Okay, so yeah, sometimes the movies have that luxury. They have the luxury of time and they have the luxury of budget. But on TV, they don't have that same luxury of time and they don't have that same luxury of budget for the most part. Um, and so when I came along, and I was able to create some music for these clients that was generically similar to the artist they were trying to license. I never ripped anybody off. I never ripped off a Van Halen song. I never ripped off a Garth Brooks song. I never ripped off a Madonna song. But I created music that was in the same ballpark. It was generically similar to these artists. All right? And so um, I also benefited from uh, kind of being at the right place at the right time because the early 90s was also – when we started to see TV shows use music a lot more, the early spelling shows like Party of Five, 90210, Beverly Hills 90210, Party of Five, Melrose Place, they started using music weekly because these characters were listening to music, right? Right, and, and they and they put so much in the show that they couldn't afford the big ticket Well, that, music. exactly. They, they might have been able to afford one piece of big music, they, they, they blow their budget on one piece of music and then have all these other spots they needed to fill. And they needed to film them quickly because TV, it, it's, uh, it's weekly. You know, they film weekly, they, they edit weekly, they air weekly during the season. Yeah. So, again, my idea was, you know what? Um, you're not going to get that Garth Brooks song in weeks, you know? But, you know what? I'll create something for you that's generically similar to Garth Brooks. It's going to be playing in the background for the most part anyways. Somebody's going to be talking over it. It doesn't matter if it's Garth Brooks, you know, but if it has the feel of the, the artist that you're going after, that's, you know, I've done my job. So that's, that was the idea that I hit on, that I could create music that was generically similar to these artists and I could license it at a moment's notice to these people and for a decimal point or two less than what they were paying for. <laughs> uh, uh, that was the concept that became Master Source, and my concept was off like a rocket. So for a while there, I was the guy 
And all these studios, Paramount TV and uh, Sony Television, Warner Television, you know, all the TV production companies and movie companies would come to for music that was, you know, that wanted, they wanted to be pop music, but they, they couldn't, they couldn't get the stuff they wanted. So, and and uh, some, something else important was happening at the time, which was home studios started to proliferate. They, they were, you know, very archaic compared to today's standard, but, you know, people were doing stuff on eight tracks of Elisa Sedat, the, the first like yep. real digital machine you could pick up for home for 2,500 bucks or whatever it costs. So more people that were capable of playing it could now produce it without going into Ocean Way or one of the studios. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And it's funny, you hit on another little uh, subject. You know, it's just the, the way in which music was um, presented and consumed. You know, I, I actually started really before uh, internet delivery of music. When I started, I feel like a fossil talking about this now, you know. <laughs> That's all right. I think we're similarly aged fossils. It, it I get actually, it. <laughs> it actually predated CDs. When I started, wow. I, I started sending stuff on cassette tapes, and then it was uh, ADATs, you know, because yeah. the editors had, most of the editors had ADAT machines. For those of oh, you, you mean a regular DAT machine. Uh, yeah. The, the digital DAT. cassette, right. Yeah. Um, and then, like, CDs started popping up around, I don't know, like 93, 94. I remember that um, I had to I had to go, I had a buddy of mine that bought at Musicians Institute. They had a standalone CD burner. Back then, those those burners were very expensive, at two, three thousand dollars. And the blanks, the blank CDs were eight dollars a piece. I mean, now they're like 10 cents a piece or whatever. Uh, but back then the blanks were eight dollars a piece and, and, and you had to you know, you had to do your recording. They had to finalize it. If you didn't do it right, you messed up the CD. <laughs> I remember, like, like literally going, going to MI at night and burning these CDs. I was like the first guy to have music library stuff on CDs. I was so excited, you know. And then I, um, you know, I, you know, I bought my own CD burner. And then a couple of years later, you started seeing them on computers, you know. So Master Source actually predated CDs, and then it kind of went through the whole. You know, I made box sets of CDs for many, many years, probably 10 right. years, 12 years. And then it's just out of CDs at the digital delivery. You know, who wants to have a thousand CDs on their wall when they can have a hard, you know, a hard drive or now digital delivery, you know? Yeah. So and there's been obviously just a, a, a lot of changes from when I started to where we are now. Um, but in essence, that's that's how Master Source started. It, it was kind of semi-accidental. Where I started getting stuff placed on my own, um, you know, demos that I had, and then you know, getting asked for other styles of music that I didn't write well. And as you mentioned, you know, a big part of my success was finding great composers, great guys that could write, you know, in, in, in the genres that I needed them to write with. And I found a lot of them through Taxi, as, as you know that. Uh, you know, we, we can name some names if you want, but... Uh, yeah, throw some um, out there. I know the oh, first one is going to be yeah, Matt Hurt. Matt Hurt. Matt Hurt is old with me after all these years. And uh, uh, I know that you use Matt on some of your print advertising, but he is the poster boy, you know? Yep. Uh, he's the poster, and he's just one of those guys that can... Uh, he's gifted and that he, he's brilliant. You know, he can, he can write big band stuff, chart stuff. He can write rap stuff he can write pop stuff he can write dance stuff he can write you know electronica he's 
one of those guys that's gifted, um, you know, and he's great at all of it, you know, but it, he's a rarity. It's because he's smart enough to really study the genre and analyze yeah. what makes it work before he attempts yeah. to write it. Yeah. 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 So kudos to uh, other folks. Uh, most recently, I came to you about a year and a half ago for uh, the, the Christian Contemporary Christian Project that I was asked to do for VerseCom. Right. And I believe we found a few folks through you. So Yeah, we solved that um, problem with one phone call. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so... Yeah, the other thing I think really made Pastor Source, um, I was providing a service that was uh, desperately needed by the studios. And, um, but the other thing you know, that you hit on earlier is that I, I, I wanted to make sure the production quality was major label quality. You know, yeah. uh, it, I, we, had to, we had to move the bar up from where production music was in the late 80s, early 90s to, you know, the new millennium, you know. Uh, because again, people were asking me to, you know, find something instead of, uh, you know, Puff Daddy or Garth Brooks or Madonna or whatever. And those, you know, they all have great production value. So, you know, I had to, had to find guys that both wrote well and produced well. So that that's a that's a, you know, there's some great writers out there that maybe our you know, production skills could, could use a little work. And there's some, some great producers out there that are not great writers. So finding finding those folks out there that have uh, both of those skill sets is uh, that's what made I, th I really believe made master source stand out from the other library so I, I was using real musicians guys that could, could have gotten record deals. matter of fact a lot of writers that I did employ had major label deals at some point you know, so, how, how was it when you reached out to these musicians because I, I remember a time when Oh, would you like your song placed in a movie or a TV show? Before people got comfortable with it, they were uncomfortable with it, and they thought they were like selling out, yeah. or that other musicians would make fun of them. How did you get them on board with the whole idea? Well, as soon as some of them started seeing some of their royalties, they came around pretty quick. <laughs> uh, yeah, because uh, let's be honest here that. Um, the royalties that can be made when a song plays on a network television show can be very healthy. Now, unfortunately, they've actually they've actually uh, they've come down a little bit. Like when I and when I started in math with Master Source in the early uh, '90s, if you had a song that had a vocal in it and played on network TV prime time for 45 seconds or more, that's considered a full feature performance of 45 seconds. You were making fifteen hundred bucks, twelve hundred dollars, fifteen hundred dollars, and just on the performance royalty. Just on the performance side, yeah. Do me a you favor. Uh, wherever you're looking right now, for you must be wearing AirPods. I'm guessing. I am. Because yeah. every every time you look to your right, it's and every time you look right at me, like right there, yeah. we hear you loud yeah. and clear. So All do right. your I'll, best. I'll, I'll look right at you. All right, uh, thanks. I, I, certainly those uh, performance royalties uh, were very healthy. Um, as I mentioned, back you know back in, in, the, in the 90s, uh, they weighted them a lot more. ASCAP uh, in particular uh, weighted pop music a lot more. So uh, those rates have come down a little bit <laughs> since then. But, uh, you know, if you had one of your songs on one TV show and that some, back then, sometimes those shows ran two or three times in a season and repeat, you're making some pretty decent money for one placement of your song. Yeah. 
you know, you multiply that by, you know, some of my guys were making six figures a year in their performance income, uh, you know, after a while. That's nothing to sneeze about. Yeah. Um, so any, any uh, misconception about, you know, production music libraries being uh, uh, anything subpar, you know, quickly evaporated with, with that, you know, so. Something uh, funny that you'll appreciate that's always made me laugh, but it's kind of an insider thing, is many, many times when I've been doing panels of A&R people from major labels at the at Taxi's convention, the Road Rally, uh, whenever they're, if they're doing a listening panel and they hear a song that's like, it's not bad, you know, but it's not great. It's not going to get cut by a major label artist. It's not going to get them a record deal. The A&R guys would always go, that's really good for film and TV because they didn't know uh, what else to say. And, yeah. and and a lot of times they weren't good for film and TV because the lyrics were too detailed or told their own story that would conflict with a script or, you know, had a screaming sax solo going halfway through the song. But their default response to music that they couldn't, you know, say, well, the chorus isn't big enough or the lyric doesn't make any sense, they'd go, that'd be really good for film and TV. Oh, it's kind of like telling a baseball player, you'd be really good in the minors, you know? I mean, right. it's, it's, well, it's, it's maybe something similar. But um, again, the, the uh, production music uh Royalties were, were really nice back then. Uh, I mean, they're still okay now. Uh, it, it really is more of a numbers game now to have more cues out there. Uh, back, back, back then, the home run was having a song with a vocal on network TV during prime time that aired for more than 45 seconds. It was, it was all, all those slots had to align in order for you to get that big home run money. But um it happened quite a lot with Master Source. All, all I can tell you is that my writers are very happy. And uh, uh, by the way, a lot of that stuff is now in um, syndication. So stuff that was placed right. in the early 90s, they're still playing on syndication. So something that uh, work you did 25 years ago, you played 25 years ago, is still earning you money today. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um so how did you, how long did you own the library? Because at some point, didn't Universal buy half of it at some point? Yeah, and then eventually and they bought out the other half and you stayed no, on managing it? Or no, how, no, how did that I, deal go down? I sold Master Source uh, in its entirety to Universal in 2007. And then I, I stayed, well, I stayed five years with them to run the business that I sold them. Right, um, great. Yeah, Um so I guess I had about a 15-year uh, run with Master Source before I sold, and then another five after. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, and just so your, your viewers uh, know, I'm actually still involved with Master Source, even though I don't own it, and I'm no longer uh, employed by Universal Music Group. Uh, Master Source is now part of the first com family of libraries, and I still produce all the music, the, all the new content for them. So it, it averages about 10, 10 titles a year. Okay. So for the last nine years, I stepped down as a full-time employee in 2012. So I'm going on nine years. Um, I've still been producing all the new content that they add to the Master Source Library. So I still have my foot in the water, toe in the water with, with my old gang. And um, I'm still employing uh, my core group of guys, including Matt. <laughs> you know, Matt, Matt's been with me this whole run, you know? Uh, yeah. 
And again, we found some other folks through taxi and uh, ho hopefully we can continue to, uh, to employ some taxi folks from time to time. Yeah, I think it's time for you to run some new listings. The level of talent at Taxi in the last few years has gotten so remarkably good that people that are regular panelists at the road rally always call me like the day after the rally and say, dude, your people are amazing. And I think it's because we've been educating them for so long. There are a lot of talented people out there, but you have to harness uh, that talent for a specific kind of goal you know for the library world it's not the same as making records it's a little different and, and our members have picked up on that and listened and perfected their shtick and uh man oh man it's amazing how many taxi members get signed and get placements now it, it, it's grown so much over the last like three years that even we can't believe it how do you think that the industry that the library industry in general as a whole has changed in the last 10 years, let's say? Well, I, I, I can tell you that there's, uh, from a production point of view standpoint, there's certainly been a lot of uh, um, additions. To, you know, when I, when I did Master Source, I only required a full vocal mix and a full non-vocal mix. And then I, I would edit down uh, the non-vocal mixes to 60s, 30s, and 15s, which is kind of, you know, what my clients wanted. Uh, at that time, but now you know we're I'm required to turn in, you know, multi mixes and stems and uh, uh, I, they really want their they, they want the end the start points and the end points to be specific, and the stems have to be spot on. They have to be edited in a certain way. So there's, there's I've noticed that I, I've noticed uh, that the the uh, uh, requirements have certainly changed you know, have, have certainly changed and let's face it there's there's just more of every there's so much more competition out there whereas in the early 90s master source had very little competition for what i i was doing maybe a couple of other libraries heavy hitters was out there they came, came out a year or two after me and uh, there was a, a few others that had vocals but you know now all the libraries have vocal series all most of the libraries will have um a producer series or uh, you know, um, they'll they'll have like George, uh, George Martin will have a series, or you know, Puff Daddy, or you know, you, you see all these big guys that that uh, that are now doing their own series for libraries. So it's it's become a lot more competitive. Yeah. Um, lot, there's so many libraries out there, but there's only a finite amount of opportunities to place music in TV shows and films. But it grows every year, you know. Uh, and again, I. I keep rolling back to when I started all those years ago. We didn't, you didn't even have the Fox Network or Warner uh, WB Network. It was the three major networks and some of the cable operators. Now everybody produces content, you know, HBO, ESPN, Amazon, Netflix. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. There, there's more, there's more programming now than ever. Right. But with that, again, you have more people that are playing in the sandbox than ever. More music libraries, more uh, composers with their own libraries, some music supervisors with their own libraries, you know? Uh, yeah, what do you think about that? I, I'm well aware of those. And, and it's kind of like uh, Nashville back in the 70s and 80s. Um, 
very incestuous, I guess is the nicest way to say it, you know, where uh, certain producers would uh, make sure that writers they had to, had signed to publishing greens were getting their songs on the records. Well, now you've got, um, you know, music soups that are using music from their own libraries. How come nobody's calling BS on that? Well, that's a good, that's a good question. You know, I don't know if it's a conflict of, of interest because it's a music supervisor's job, I guess, to satisfy the the, uh, the producers of the film or the directors of the film. If they can do it internally, I guess they're doing their job, but they they, they may be colored, you know, they, they may be, uh, they may have blinders on, you know, or maybe the better piece of music is outside their library. Right. Um, so it, it does raise some ethical questions or concerns. Um, so, look, I, I understand why a music supervisor would, would want to draw from their own library. They're getting a bite out of the same apple. Um, but again, it, it, does, uh, it does raise some ethical issues as to, as to whether or not the client is really being best served. But yeah, that's, I, for another, I, that's for another panel to discuss. Yeah, I, I guess you're right that if the bottom line is is the showrunner, or the uh, you know whoever is the final judge of the music uh, is happy with the music what the music soup is putting in front of them. I guess they don't really care where it came from, but they would have to oh. doubt uh, you know if there's something better out there. But maybe her with something else, but this we'll never know. You know? Right. Um, how do you feel, I'm, I'm jumping a little bit ahead on my list of questions here, uh, but how do you feel, you know what? No, I'm not going to jump there yet. I'm going to go to something else, which is sometimes new taxi members who are inexperienced in the ways of the music library industry, uh, will get a forward from taxi and then the library reaches out to them and says, I'd love to sign you. And it's a 50, 50 deal. The, the library gets the publisher's share. The writer keeps the writer's share. Everybody, you know, that, that's standard nowadays. Everybody should be happy, but some early, uh, less experienced taxi members will say, I'm not giving up any of my publishing. I remember taking a, you know, a, a music law class in college mm -hmm. 15 years ago. And they said, never give up your publishing. Yeah. Um, how would you counter that argument to inform the uneducated, uninitiated that that's the way well, things work and why it happens that way? Yeah, well, it, first of all, let's let's um, remember that we are in the music business and the word business is associated with that. And that uh, in terms of production music library, most agreements are done as a work for hire. Okay, so your, your, your readers should educate themselves about what work-for-hire agreements are. But essentially, uh, if you boil it down, typically a work-for-hire agreement is um, when the, 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 act, the, the author of the work is, uh, on the strict interpretation of copyright law, the person hiring the composer can list themselves as the author. But most music libraries don't do that under strict interpretation of copyright copyright law. That's what work for hire is. Um, I, I would say to the, the, those, those writers getting into this field for the first time that uh, you have to look at this as commerce, number one, okay? And it, it's really no different than a painting. If you were a painter and you painted a painting, 
and you put it in a gallery and somebody bought your painting, they are buying that painting. They, you know, you as the, the, art, the artist no longer own that painting. You know, I guess you could license, you could do prints and stuff and license it out. But if you, if you had a one-off painting and you put it in a gallery and somebody bought it, you've transferred that ownership to the acquirer. And that's, a, that's the interpretation of, of work for higher agreements. Yeah, you're, um, you're, you're breaking up again. I don't know what. I don't know what to tell you. Uh, it's like sometimes you're fine, and then you move your head an inch, and you're not fine anymore. But so where it looks good because I'm right, off to the right. Uh, right there is kind of good okay. at the moment. I hope it All stays right. that way. Thanks. Mark. Okay. All right. So um, that that's the that's kind of a, a generalization of work for higher agreements is that someone is hiring you to, to, someone is hiring you to perform a service and you are assigning over the rights to that work to the person that's hiring, hiring you. Uh, typically with music libraries, as you mentioned, the, the writer, the composer, keeps his writer's share of performance income. In other words, once that song is aired on TV, the publisher is going to earn a dollar and the writer is going to earn a dollar. It's an equal amount of royalty. And the other thing I will I would say to those folks trying to break into it uh, is that, as in most fields, it's very very competitive, and you have unfortunately you have some folks that will go even beyond giving away their music for free. <clears throat> but I've heard even I've heard of situations where even writers will kick back some of their uh, their performance income to. Uh, libraries or um, it, it's very sad you know there's some companies out there uh, and I'll name them you know I mean Saban and Deep were both I think there were lo very high profile lawsuits uh, brought up by by uh, uh, their writers because they were hired under work for hire agreements and the writers all of a sudden seem to think that they those agreements and uh, uh, Kind of rewrite history, but they did sign work for hire agreements, and uh, uh, I believe both Deke and uh, Saban uh, prevailed in those lawsuits. For the most part. Wow. But, yeah, so new writers have to understand that they're competing against a lot of other folks in, in I say, the sandbox. Everybody playing in the sandbox. So there's a lot of competition out there, and um, you have to understand that in our in, in this field, the typical work for hire agreement is that a writer gets paid for his work. Most libraries will pay you; they should be paying you to sign over uh, sign over the composition and the master recording to them, and you retain your your uh, writer's share of your performance. But, but many libraries don't, especially um, libraries that deal almost exclusively in instrumental music. They don't pay for those cues. That's become the norm now. But you could make a pretty good argument that people make it up in bulk on the performance yeah. royalties, getting stuff yeah. in you know uh, reality shows. So yeah. um, what percentage of libraries would you say that are dealing in stuff with lyrics, actual songs with lyrics, are still paying any sort of upfront money to buy out the, the publisher's share of the copy? Well, I'm, I'm, from what I know, I hear from some of my writers who write for other libraries, at least big libraries, uh, the ones that are attached to 
uh, you know, big, big uh, publishing companies, the Universal Libraries, the Warner Apple Libraries are still paying writers, you know, a production fee. I do, you know. Um, that's what I'm told. And again, I don't have my finger on the pulse of every music library out there, but, uh, you know, I, from what I'm gathering, uh, at least the bigger ones, the ones that are, uh, as I mentioned, um, part, of, part of the, the, uh, the bigger um, publishing companies are part of the production fees. I, I would counter that by saying that a lot of libraries that work with Taxi are, in fact, distributed by Universal and they don't mm -hmm. pay production fees. However, well, there's so a different Okay, go ahead. By Universal and being owned by Universal, because right. So the the big Universal libraries are Killer Tracks, First Com, and Master Source. Those are the big three. Right. I can only speak for what I know. Um, and, but they and frankly, should be, you know, they, they, I mean, for for a music library to expect a writer producer to produce this on their own and then sign over the public. That's pretty. That's pretty onerous, I think. You know, uh, that that that's a big ask. I think. Uh, I, I would. There are libraries that we work with at Taxi that don't pay anything, don't pay a production fee, and get the the publisher share. But they're so good at what they do and have made so much money for our members. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know them to be very ethical, extremely hardworking people. That I'm like, you know, that's okay. Um, but there are others that are not, you know, a lot of little libraries, a million, well, I'm exaggerating that number, but you know, a couple thousand libraries, I would venture a guess, uh, have cropped up over the last five years that are started by people that go, oh, there's money, money to be made in the library business. So I'm going to jump in. Um, and they've lowered the floor on all that stuff, so mm. to speak. Uh, and usually when there's any kind of economic downturn, like we're going through right now, um, those companies tend to go away and the better ones tend to stick around. Mm. Um, there's another issue that I've been dying to ask you about. I, I would have asked you this on a personal phone call, but I might as well ask it in front mm. of a bunch of people, which is, now with all the different companies, um, I, I don't want to pick on CD Baby because they're a fine company, they're totally legit, but they're a good example of this. Uh, all the distribution companies and companies that provide services for musicians, and many of them have a little box that you check that says, would you also like us to monetize your music by collecting uh, royalties for, for placements for you. You know, maybe they're acting as an admin company only. Maybe you've signed a non-exclusive publishing deal with them by checking that box. In some cases, you've signed an exclusive deal by checking that box. Mm. We are starting to see this become a real problem when we forward taxi members to some of our library clients and the libraries do their due diligence and they get down for enough, for, far enough down the road where they reach out uh, to the musician and say, I'd like to offer you a deal. And then they find out, oh, lo and behold, they actually checked that box and they are now signed to a publishing agreement that they signed three or four years ago that they didn't even realize was a publishing agreement. Or if they did, they've forgotten about it. Um, are you seeing any of that in your world or not yet? Not yet, not, not for me personally, but um, I think it also harkens back 
Oh, shit, I'm losing. I mean, shoot, I'm losing you again. (laughs) You're perfect right there. Okay. I think that harkens back to some sage advice uh, that I gave in my book, Rockstar 101, by the way. Uh, Shameless plug. Shameless plug. That book's been out almost 20 years, but uh, I cover a lot of music publishing uh, stuff in there. Yeah, um, Rock Rockstar 101. I've read yep, it. Um, I yep. actually my copy's at the office, or I'd be holding it up right now. But Liz yep. does have the link, and she's going to put it in the chat room. Yeah, I think I think it's probably available on Amazon.com. But anyways, um, nobody should sign anything or click anything until they've either thoroughly read it through and understand it, or get somebody else to understand it for you. Um, that's the biggest piece of, of advice that I I, I can give to you know, not only recording artists, but but composers is please, please, please understand what you're signing. You know, it's easy to get into a bad deal. It's harder to get out of one. You know, and um, I, you know, it's been said it's better to have no record deal than being in a lousy one because a record deal can, can uh, a bad record deal can tie you up for seven years here in California. You know. Yeah. Uh, and so I really would encourage everyone to just just take that step back and don't don't click that button yet. Just re- make sure you understand what you're getting yourself into, because hearing a story like that where someone clicked something they thought that maybe CD Baby or somebody like them was going to just represent them non-exclusively and they'd have the opportunity to pitch their stuff somewhere else or to write for other libraries, and then you know, finding out that you're in this bear trap of an agreement that you, you have to, you know, gnaw your leg out to gnaw your leg to get out of it. It's horrible, you know, and I hate hearing that because musicians, again, it's tough, it's tough enough to make a living in, in any music field, you know? Yeah. You, you read about, you know, the Kanye West and a few others that are make, make hundreds, hundreds of millions a year, but you know, that's the top of the pyramid. The bottom of the pyramid's a lot bigger. There's so many more people at the bottom not making a hundred million dollars a year than than are at the top making a hundred million. So it's it really is it's challenging to, to make a living as a musician. It's always been, you know. Yeah. I, I going back to the minstrel days, you know, uh, being, you know, or through the 1800s and and even you know, even through early contemporary music, you know. Uh, Yes, you, you, you hear about successful people, but there's just there's for every successful guy that's making a decent living, there's uh, there's thousands more that are struggling to make a living. So hearing stories like this is is discerning to me. And uh, but again, I would encourage um, I would encourage your viewers to you know again to just hit, hit the pause button before you hit the click button and uh, understand what you're getting yourself in. Sorry, I'm turning off my phone. It's vibrating. Um, I I think that it's sad for all forms of creative people that I've noticed, whether they're, you know, visual artists, recording artists. um, People are just so hungry and desperate to get their work out there and be recognized and appreciated that the minute somebody pays attention to them, it's it's like being somebody who doesn't get asked on a lot of dates or somebody yeah. who doesn't get a lot of yeses when they ask other people out on dates. And somebody who's like above your pay grade says yes, you're like, I'm all over it, but you don't realize that, you know, they're a psychotic serial killer. Or, yeah. uh, that's why people sign bad deals. And they look at the stuff and they go, this is gibberish. Do I want to spend 500 bucks an hour on a music attorney 
when this deal, you know, this particular instrumental cue probably won't generate $500 over the next year for me. But Matt Hurt, our mutual friend, um, you know, a longtime taxi member and a longtime uh, uh, writer for you, has always said, hire a music attorney to, to go through the first contract you get and explain what all these clauses are, take copious notes, and then that way the next contract will have many of the same things in there so you don't have to pay an attorney to go through the whole thing. Most of it you'll understand, and you can hit the attorney with the one clause you don't understand. And I think that was maybe Matt Hurt's greatest gift to his fellow members was explaining that. And what a generous guy to share that with everybody. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a, a great idea. Um, there, there might be some free, I don't know, free is the right word, but there, there might be some stuff out there. Uh, Google has, <laughs> I think if you deep Google, you could probably find uh, some commentary on uh, music, you know, music uh, uh, contract law out there. But uh, I, I think every dollar spent on an attorney comes, comes back uh, in time multiple times so. <laughs> um any sage oh i want to ask you about universal lyrics uh, you and i've never had this discussion for as long as we've known each other there are a lot of things uh you know we've gone to lunches and stuff but we've never discussed universal lyrics um it's hard to get people to understand when they write a song and they're emoting and the muse has come to visit and they write a song about their breakup with their boyfriend or their girlfriend, their life story. And there are a lot of personal details, a lot of details, period, in there. Makes it very difficult to sync because it may take it out of what the, the film or the scene is about. It may conflict with the story in the scene. But I have noticed to some small degree in the last year and a half to two years that we're getting less pressure from the libraries and to some extent supervisors. Um, eh, you know, universal lyrics aren't that important to me. It's going to be used as background source. I'm more uh, concerned about the sound, the overall vibe. Does it sound like the band Keel would have sounded back in that time period? Uh, have you... Do you have an observation about universal lyrics? Are they any less important? Are they still important? What's your feeling? Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, in some cases, a specific lyric might work. Now, I, there have been times where, um, you know, back in the day where a supervisor was, you know, would, we would custom create pieces of music for, for people. And sometimes it was the lyric that was important. Uh, sometimes it was the, the feel of the song that was important. They, they wanted, uh, for example, they wanted a piece of rap music with a sitar in it. You know, they, they wanted that mashup. Nobody could find it, so we, we had to create it. But sometimes, so, sometimes the specific lyric is is uh, uh, what the doctor ordered. But I think in more in more more general terms, it's a general lyric. A as you were calling a universal lyric, I thought you were thought you meant universal, uh, universal music group lyric. I'm like, <laughs> I never heard that. Is there a Warner Brothers lyric? Uh, no, uh, but I think in general for music libraries, because again, we're we're talking generalities here, and uh, in general, music libraries are are filling um, a need to kind of fill in the holes, fill in the gaps. You know, most movies, they'll have their centerpiece songs. You know, they'll have, 
their big, huge songs. They'll have their end title song. They'll have their their maybe big love scene song. Um, but the music libraries, you know, uh, fill the holes. They, they fill in the source music gaps. People walk into a restaurant, a bar, there's there's music playing. Or there's a car radio scene where they're, they're flipping through the – or a head, you know, uh, a headphone scene or a blaster scene, you know. Yeah. It's the eighties, eighties movie. There's still blasters, you know. That's where uh, you know the music li- you know, music libraries are, you know, in film and TV specifically are are, are filling a lot of those gaps. And and therefore, um, I, I don't think a specific lyric about a specific breakup or a specific time and place is is necessary. It's generalities. Um, and for the most part, music and source music is is not featured that predominantly. Um, in general, I mean, in general, uh, our, our source music placements are background. There are car radios, there are bar scenes, there's dialogue over it. They're shorter in length in general, you know. Um, and so I think I think people are, for the most part, safe in um, in creating general generalized lyrics or universal lyrics as you're saying unless there's there's a, a specific ask for uh, for a specific lyric you know maybe there's a character that's going to paris on a honeymoon and so all of a sudden you know something that uh, that refers to paris or re- refers to france or europe or traveling or vacation or or honeymoon or starting off a new life uh you know would would become more important but again those just those are specifics and not generalities Right. And from a library owner's perspective, you know, that's great. If you've got a song that talks about uh, the moonlight on the Seine in Paris, that's great for <laughs> that. You know, once every three years when you get that ask for yeah. the rest of the time, you know, if somebody's having a romantic moment, uh, you know, on Michigan Avenue in Chicago, you can't use yeah. it. <laughs> there's funny, uh, funny you mentioned that, though, because there, there's a series that I've been producing for Master Source. Uh, they're branding it as girls on top. <laughs> so it's it, it, on top of the pop charts. Okay. But that's, it's a series where I've done five of these already. And the, um, the, the, the concept is that it's female empowered pop and rocks songs. Right. And lyrically it's, it's about, you know, female empowerment, you know, not, not being subjugated or whatever. It's like, you know, um, I'm my own boss. I'm the boss chick, whatever. So there's, there's an example that my writers do, you know, I've given them a direction to go on here. You know, we, we don't want, you know, you singing about, uh, you know, stabbing your boyfriend to death or that kind of thing. (laughs) We want lyrics about female empowerment, you know, about uh, feeling good in, in, in feeling good in your space and feeling good in the world. So, that that's an assignment in which the lyric is semi-important, but uh, that's the only one I can really think of uh, the last few years that that, uh, that uh, uh, has had any kind of specific lyric direction uh, attached. Yeah, we get a ton of requests for um, female empowerment stuff, and, and generally, yeah, the, the clients are looking for. Um, <laughs> going out with the girls we're going to light up this town you know it's like we're strong we're a force of nature kind of stuff not um i am woman hear me roar so much (laughs) (laughs) helen reddy was way ahead of the curve on that um 
I think I've asked everything on my list. I want to open this up, which is perfect timing because I was going to try and squeeze in a half an hour of questions from the viewers today. So if you guys in the audience have some questions, I will read them from the chat because Mark's not seeing the chat and I will relay them to him. Um, somebody wrote in my girlfriend oh but this didn't show up in the chat it got deleted my girlfriend kicked my ass <laughs> all right here's a question from paul house uh mark thanks for being here do you find that running the library keeps you tied up in paperwork with less time to make music how do you feel about that do you still write okay so yes uh i i uh, yes absolutely uh frank zappa said it best there's more business than music in the music business that's a quote attributed to him. And running a music library has, unfortunately, has, has a lot of administrative components to it, you know, from uh, issuing contracts to the uh, songs that you're, you're uh, uh, creating to, you know, copyright registration to uh, royalty accounting to reviewing royalty statements to maintaining websites and all the data points that go into patching uh, um, uh, metadata to music. Uh, so yes, unfortunately, the the administrative uh, component of running a, a library uh, takes up so much of my time. Uh, a lot of people may uh, surprise. I didn't write. I didn't write for my own library for many many years because of that reason. Uh, and I was. Uh, I thought I my value to growing my business was more important for me, getting out there and meeting clients, taking meetings, meeting the music supervisors, the directors, the studio heads, getting out there and, and um, you know, establishing a, a relationship with someone than being in the studio, uh, you know, spending a whole day writing or uh, composing a song. And that, that's why for many years, I, I didn't, didn't have the time to write for my own library. Now these days, where you know I've sold my business uh, to Universal, and my only responsibility to them now is producing new music. Yes, I am. Uh, I'm able to write uh, more now, and uh, actually played on a couple demos last year. I hadn't done that in a long time. So, wow. uh, yeah, I know I'm, I'm a little rusty these days. Is guitar still your primary in instrument? It's, it's my only. It's it's my only in instrument. I haven't even mastered that after 50 years of playing it. Um, I'm just curious from a recording uh, perspective, being a retired engineer, um, yeah. do you use amps and microphones? Do you use um, sims? How, how do you get your sounds? Yeah, well, these oh, we, we've, we've obviously seen a segue from physical amps to, you know, all the digital audio workspaces that are out there. So that, that's, that, that's how I roll these days. But, you know, the old days, yeah, you were setting up an amp in a studio and you know blasting away with martial amps you know i i miss i miss feeling that push of that air you know through the amps yeah. but uh but obviously these days with uh, digital workspaces it just it just makes it so much easier and uh you're able to collaborate obviously with people all over the world and that's getting back to, to our friend matt hurt he's he's the master of that yeah. you know where well he'll bring in he'll bring in co-producers from all over the world you know we, we've done uh Asian uh, rap uh, titles. We, we've done uh, world rap titles where, you know, he's gotten guys uh, from Russia, you know, uh, Korea, uh, Spain, Italy, France, Germany, you know, the guys that live in these countries to, to actually, uh, you know, to actually perform on his recordings. 
Oh, but, that's, uh, that's become very common with our yeah. members. And once again, yeah. Matt, Matt yeah. was the catalyst that kind of got yeah. the ball rolling and popularized yeah. that. Um, I have a question here from Super Blonde, one of the people in the chat saying, what's the harmonic complexity of placed songs? Only four chords or does more complex stuff tend to be favored by the people who are making the, oh, uh, the decision? I don't know if there's any uh, right or wrong answer there. I mean, ACDC's only got three chords in it and you hear them everywhere. But I think in general, in general, uh, what makes music interesting is when there's uh, lifts and when there's changes in the music, you know. So I would think uh, in general that you're probably uh, more things are being licensed that have more than four chords in them. But, you know, I haven't really paid attention to that. Again, I... Uh, you know, there's there's probably some forms of music, uh, blues, the standard 12 bar blues stuff is probably three chords. Right. So that, that gets, you know, blues gets licensed quite a bit. But uh, I think in general, you're you're uh, I think we're safe to say that we're hearing songs that have more than four chords in them. Um, Interesting question. Simplicity is something I keep hearing this over and over from taxi members who have catalogs or have stuff in several other people's catalogs that. Uh, and I think Matt Hurt may have actually told me this. I hate to keep re referencing Matt, but hey, he's a great guy, so let's reference the hell out of him. Uh, that often the alt mix of something, let's say they've done something that's fairly complex, and, yeah. and the person licensed or the library will say, can you give me an alt mix or give me stems? And it's almost always the simpler stuff that tends to get licensed more frequently. Um, I don't know why that is i don't know if it you know uh, distracts less from the scene um but that is definitely a thing that i've heard about now that's not the same as the number of chords or the harmonic yeah. complexity but um somebody once explained it to me one of my library owner friends said to me if the music is so good that people notice it more often than not that's a bad thing because they want to keep you on task listening to the dialogue and the actors um, if the music's so good, you're paying attention to the music, that's a bad thing. Obviously, for a piece of music that's featured in a scene, it becomes less of a thing. It's it's better to have music that's more impressive, let's say. Um, have you noticed anything about the, you know, the simplicity factor? Well, I think you, you hit on the, the, uh, the whole issue of stems. So stems allows... Stems allow the editors to to, 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 you know, to really be their music, a musical director. You know, let's say there was a saxophone going all the way through the song, or most of the song, or guitar fills, or vocal uh, or vocal accents going through a song. Um, by having these stems, the, the editors can mix. They can mix this the, the instrument up or down. You know, uh, in terms of volume or out, uh, they can choose. You know, how many instruments to have. And I think it gives it just gives them more control, more control than ever before. Because again, back in the day, I only provided one mix or right. one mix with the vocal, one mix without the vocal. If you didn't like the saxophone, then find a spot that the saxophone it didn't happen. But these days, because um, um, again, the editors now have more tools. Uh, you know, I hear some you know some libraries are mixing at five point one stereo and. Or making those mixes available, you know, there's, there's, there's just there's more options out there for the editors to, um, you know, kind of chart the course of what, what how the song lays in, in a scene. That's my observation. 
I'm looking for other questions here. In the world, Paul House asks another question. In the world of COVID, are you placing via video chats? How's the network being done now? But you're, you're not actually doing the placing, right? You're, you're building yeah. the catalog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, again, my, my role with MasterSource uh, in the last nine years has strictly been that uh, on the creative side. You know, uh, uh, I can't... Um, my marketing orders from uh, the folks at Cloudcom. You know, we we do. Uh, um, they'll let me know. They're, the music supervisors over there will let me know what they're getting asked for. They're getting asked for a lot of, um, you know, Asian pop. By the way, you know, K-pop, K-pop is like ruling the world now. So yeah. um, that's been a very very popular style. We've we've done Asian pop now almost every year for the last three or four years. So we are responding to what the market. Uh, the market is uh, telling us. Um, so uh, the folks at Firstcom will give me a list of genres in which they, they feel that they need more of or they're getting a lot of requests for, and that helps me determine which titles to produce. So, yeah, fortunately, I, I, don't, I, I don't have a, a stitch of administrative work to do anymore, and I, and I love that. You know? I bet you do. <laughs> That would be my dream job at Taxi is just doing the fun stuff and not doing all the work that nobody ever sees that goes behind it. Yeah. Um, let's see. Tony Salazzo asks, uh, have you had feedback that your new songs sound dated? Put another way, how do you keep up with with current sounds? Or maybe that's not an issue for you. So I, I think in general what Tony's asking is a fair amount of our members are middle-aged. Um, maybe even into their 50s and 60s. And the stuff they tend to make sounds like what they grew up loving. And they get a lot of feedback saying this sounds dated. Sometimes you want stuff that sounds retro and dated. You're absolutely right. Sometimes I get asked to produce stuff that's dated. We'll do an 80s, you know, an 80s uh, pop title. Or we'll do a 90s alt-rock title. Now, those are dated. Those are specific you know, th those are specific eras in which uh, certain types of music were prevalent during during that era. Um, I, if I can maybe extrapolate on what uh, he's saying, Tony's saying is that, what about the sounds? You know, sometimes um, you know, um, tr uh, sometimes the, the, the drum sounds that drummers are using now that they, they evolve. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, drummers can buy these uh, you know sounds, these kits essentially. And then they change in time. And sometimes even, you know, guitar tones change in time. So if, if we're producing something that's contemporary, yes, we have to make sure that we're not using like an 808 drum machine when we're doing, you know, something that's, that, that's a contemporary, uh, uh, you know, a contemporary title. Or we're not, uh, we're, we're not using a guitar tone that sounds like it was from 1976 Boston, the Boston album, when it's, you know, <laughs> When, when it's, uh, you know, uh, a hard rock title we're doing now. So um, we, we have to be, yeah, we, we have to be aware that uh, the sonic sounds that we're using to make these recordings are reflective of what we're being asked to do. I think that's the better answer. Um, how about string libraries and horn libraries in particular? They seem to yeah. just keep getting better and better and better. Yeah. And sometimes the taxi we hear incredibly well composed pieces come in 
And then you get into, you know, like 30 seconds in and a string line comes up and you go, oh, I can't believe they're that good as a composer working from a, you know, digital audio workstation at home. They've got so much of their act together and yet they don't realize that these strings sound like they're 10 years old. They just don't sound that convincing. Um, Are dated or crappy sounding strings and horns an issue for you? If you hear a great piece... And, and yeah. you know, the strings don't sound good. Will you pass on the piece? Well, for me, uh, I don't produce a lot of orchestral stuff. You know, most, so master, by the way, master source, when I started master source many years ago, I knew that I couldn't be all things to all people. Okay. Smart. And I, I adopted the Kentucky fried chicken uh, concept. Now what's the Kentucky fried chicken? Concept? Well, Kentucky fried chicken. They do chicken, right? Okay. That's their tagline. <laughs> Right? They do chicken right. They're not doing burritos. They're not doing sushi. You know, they're not. Maybe they do salads. No, I don't know. But they do chicken right. Okay. So I came from the pop music world. That was that was the era that that, that was the the arena of the genre that I was most familiar with. To this day, twenty five years later, Master Source has not done a single uh, uh, classical album. Wow. Uh, very, very little uh, orchestral music. I had I had a series called TPM Trailer, uh, Trailer and Production uh, or, uh, Music. I only did three of those. But in general, I didn't do orchestral music. I, I, I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't an expert on it. So I stuck to what I knew how to do best. And that was and that was, you know, rock music and pop music. So. Uh, to this day, I, I really don't produce. Uh, I don't get asked to produce the orchestral stuff because that's not. That's you know. I'm admitting I'm not the orchestral guy. You know, it's, it's okay to be one it, one thing and do you know, it really I, I well. It's very, smart. Very, very very little world music. You know, if somebody came to me and needed a piece of Swahili dance music, I'd gracefully bow out and say, "I'm not your guy." But here's somebody. You know, it's a friend of mine with a library that might have it. You know. That By the way, you me. just brought up something really interesting. I know library owners. Uh, there, there is a, there's a competitive brotherhood out there among library owners, and I've seen that happen where I've had one library call me and say, uh, I just heard something really, really good. It's just not right for my client base. Can you connect me with this other library that I think has a lot of shows that they work with that would probably eat this up? And I thought yeah. that was really menchy of him to do, and it's also heartwarming to know that just because you're not right for this catalog, you could be great for another one. Yeah, I, I used to refer. I don't know if you know Marty went to the source queue, but uh, he, he's been he's been doing this long as I have. But he he really came from the orchestral world uh, and the classical world. But I, and I used to just as a I liked him. He was nice to me. I just I used to refer anything over to him that was you know in in that in that field. I'm pretty sure he he referred a few things back to me, you know, and I used to get asked for sound effects. I just was not a sound effect library, but I knew several sound effect libraries. I was happy to at least make sure my client got, you know, got something they needed, uh, they needed to have. So, um, Pierre Venio is asking a question. What would be an average threshold of published slash placed cues or songs before making decent income? Which who what what hey, is well, decent income? But. Well, look, we all know about one hit wonders. I mean, in the pop world, you know, there there are guys that that have lived their whole life on writing one hit song, and that's certainly lightning in a bottle. Okay, but to, to answer Pierre's question. 
um, it, it's a numbers game. It really is. Um, you, you can have one piece, you, you know, I've had several songs that have been licensed dozens of times, you know, and so obviously that writer made some decent money on one song. But in general, it's uh, uh, especially if we're not talking, you know, film and TV placements, we're talking uh, uh, maybe reality, you know, a blanket license in, in a reality show a television. It's it's instead of picking up a dollar off the street, you have to pick up 100 pennies. Right. So it's, it's all about life. <laughs> That's the way that I looked at it. You know, Master Source never got those huge sync uh, uh, fees. You know, we, ne- we, ne- we never got the $100,000 sync fees, but we probably got $100,000 sync fees. You know, you probably so, heard that from the same guy I did, our mutual friend, Jim, who once yeah. said to me at lunch at Hugo's in Malibu, he said, Michael, it's a penny business. You just got to yeah. make a lot of pennies. <laughs> yeah, well, that, there, there's a lot of truth to that. So to answer Pierre's question, I, I, I can't say... Uh, give you a number well you have to have 10 placements you have to have 20 placements uh, but in general it's all about having as much of your material out there working for you as possible uh, um, and by the way my, my guys are not beholden just to master source my guys you know I don't sign my guys exclusively right. master source, I sign them on a project by project basis I think that you know Matt works for other libraries and uh, many of the guys that, that I hire occasionally are, are working for other libraries still. So, all about uh, spreading those tentacles. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, I always tell people you want to be in somewhere around 10 libraries, but choose the 10 wisely because just getting in a library, although that can be emotionally rewarding, it may be the wrong library for your stuff. Um, you really have to know who you're signing with. Who are their clients? What type of shows? Do they get more stuff in indie films or in episodic TV? Do they play stuff? You wouldn't want to sign a song with a library that 80 or 90% of their income comes from getting instrumental cues in reality shows because the odds of your thing getting used, not that great. So, you know, it pays to pays to watch taxi tv and learn what we're talking about um somebody just asked a good question it's scrolled off the screen here but it's from a young lady i believe a young lady could be an old lady i don't know but somebody named lola asked the question basically how long should you wait to hear back from a library we get this all the time if there's such a thing as a universal question from our members it's like hey you guys forwarded me to that listing you know three weeks ago and i haven't heard anything um sometimes it could be six weeks sometimes it could be six months we had one case where somebody got a call back seven years later so can you tell them what the average is and why it takes a while for them to hear back from a library well look i all i can tell you is that when i was on the other end of of the telephone making calls to music supervisors and checking in i try to find a balance of being um persistent but not being annoying okay uh, it, it's a fine line because you, because you want to, you want to stay in front of these folks, uh, music supervisors, they're, they're, they, a lot of folks reaching out to them multiple times, uh, music library owners, you know, I can tell you almost on a weekly basis, I'll get somebody hitting my website, you know, asking about opportunities and everything. Um, so I, I would say, you know, first of all, is it, if, are we talking about like maybe submitting for a certain TV show that's, you know, going to edit like 
today or next month and then air next month or we're talking generalities i would say maybe a month after i don't think i think a month is probably you know four weeks somebody hasn't gotten around to uh, uh listening to your submission i think maybe at that point in time it's okay for an email you know an email nudge and a polite one and i always you know if you can make somebody laugh I think that uh, if you could bring a smile to somebody's face in your email, I think that really helps your cause. You know, if you can word it in a way that you're friendly, you're uh, saying, I, I know you, you know, just be, be light about it in your email and put a smile on somebody's face, I, I think you're going to get an answer quicker than, than you would if, if you didn't put a smile on somebody. Yeah, before COVID, I would always start the email out with, I saw you with your girlfriend in Hollywood at that restaurant last night, but I won't say anything. <laughs> that always, no, I'm kidding, of course, I'm kidding. Um, unfortunately, we had to stop telling members years ago, we used to say your, your music was forwarded to this company or that company. And then you remember Bonnie Greenberg, I'm sure you remember sure. her, right? Sure. Okay, so... I, if memory serves correctly, and I think it does, um, we forwarded a taxi member, uh, and this was probably just around the time Google was becoming a real thing. And we said, your music's been forwarded to music supervisor, Bonnie Greenberg. Well, some industrious taxi member Googled Bonnie Greenberg and her phone, home phone number came up. Oof. And he called her on a Friday night at like 10 o'clock at home. Mm. Is this Bonnie Greenberg? Yes, it is. Who's calling? Well, my name is Bob. You got my song sent to you by taxi. Are you going to use it in your movie? And she goes, what the hell are you doing calling me at home on a Friday night at 10 o'clock? He goes, are you going to use my song in your movie or not? Did you even listen to it? And got really nasty with her. Monday morning, I got a phone call from Bonnie that was, she and rightfully so, she was just like, I am never, ever using your service again. So that was the day I made the decision that we can no longer tell our members where they're being forwarded to because we have a lot of really nice members with level heads and good etiquette. And we have some people that just don't have that together. So they can't follow up. Now, um, after people hear you, know, hear you say, well, wait a month and then follow up, I'm going to get a flurry of emails from people saying, hey, I for- you forwarded this thing. Can you follow up? I've well, noticed- maybe follow up with you rather right. than follow up with yeah, the client. And, yeah. And uh, look, we know when they've downloaded the files we've sent them. We check that stuff. Um, something that happens a lot at Taxi is that the companies run listings when they realize they're a particular genre is old or out of date, or they don't have enough of something that's become very much in vogue lately. So they call us and say, hey, can you find me a bunch of K-pop stuff? And then we run a listing, we forward them the K-pop stuff because it's the happening thing at the moment. And then they, none of our members, uh, we tell our members, you've been forwarded to a library for your K-pop thing that you submitted for XYZ listing. Uh, the library then doesn't get back to them because that was a general thing. They're looking for more K-pop. All of a sudden, they get uh, a new show that they're working on, and it's fast and furious, and they're getting stuff out because it's episodic, it's weekly, and they get totally distracted. And if they even think about that file of K-pop stuff on their desktop, they're thinking, oh, yeah, I got to get to that. And they don't for quite some period of time. And then they get a little lull between Christmas and New Year's. And they go, you know what? I'm going to clean off my desktop. Oh, that K-pop stuff from Taxi. That's the magical day when they hear the great thing in there and they reach out to the member. So uh, again, it might have been Matt Hurt. It was certainly one of our early successful members that came up with write, submit, forget, 
repeat. It's like wash, mm -hmm. rinse, and, and repeat. Yeah. Write, submit, forget, and repeat because your job is to just keep cranking it out and getting it into as, on as many desktops as you can. And eventually the stuff that's destined to bear fruit will. Just don't worry about it. Is that sound advice? I, I think you hit the nail on the head because the last thing you want to do is to piss off someone who, who may, uh, you know, may have, uh, may have used, you know, your, your song, uh, but you, uh, you, you know, you came across so badly that you left a bad taste in their mouth and they just don't want to do business with you. So I think that's sage advice. Uh, and I said this earlier, I said this earlier that, uh, Unfortunately, well, I don't know. Unfortunately, is the right word, but you, in the music library world, we have to look. We you have to look at it almost as a commodity, you know. And it, and it doesn't mean that your music has any less value than than um, you know a piece of pop music. It's just that in this field of music, in this field of the music business, music is somewhat commoditized. And um, I used, the other thing that you brought up, uh, I used to have. In the early days, like when, when I when I was, I, I found a song that I liked and I wanted to sign, and 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 some writers were just so atta emotionally attached to a piece of music, because <laughs> they wrote it for their dead cat or whatever it was, they, they didn't want to part with it. You know, you, you have to you have to put that in the rearview mirror. You know, you, you know, you, somebody once told me production music libraries like assembly line music, and I, I you know. Maybe that's too harsh of a term to use, but the, but there's there's certain there's certain aspects of that that are correct. That it's it is somewhat of a job. It is somewhat repetitive, and that you're cranking one song out after the other. And after you make that song, you got to just push it off the assembly line. You know, yeah. You can't have an emotional attachment to it. If you do happen to write that you, your stairway to heaven piece of music, then don't 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 don't, don't give it to a library. You know. Keep it, right. keep it else and play it for yourself forever, you know, but <laughs> you just, you brought up a memory that there, that there were in the early days, there certainly were, there were uh, sometimes I would hear that, well, oh, this is such a special piece of music, I just can't part with it, like, I, you know, okay. Right. If uh, you write your grand office. Yeah, Go, put that one aside and write me another one just like that. You know? Apparently, uh, I butchered Lola's question a little bit, oh. but I'm glad we talked about all that anyway because it's important stuff to get out there. Lola's actual question, uh, she typed in the, the thing again, is when a library reaches out to you and offers you a deal, how long can you go before you get back to them with an answer? If you need time to oh. think about it or consult with an attorney, how, how long will they think is too long, like you're not interested or you're a jerk? I don't think there's re any real answer to that. I think if you went back to the library and said, uh, I'm, um, I'm super interested in this. Uh, I just, I, I just want to get some opinions or some advice on something and I'll get back to you in a reasonable period of time. I think, you know, look, if as long as it's going to, I think a month, a couple of weeks, a month is certainly a reasonable period of time, you know, not seven years later as uh, your client got back <laughs> to your writers. Uh, but look, I, if a library is pressuring you to, to, to make a deal right away, I think that should be a red flag. You know, I think, you know, I respect people. I respect people that, that uh, uh, do the research and come back with questions or say, you know, that's my advice to them. My advice to them is to, you know, make sure, make sure you understand what you're signing or 
or, you know, retain somebody to help you understand it. So I, I respect that. I'm not going to force somebody to, you yeah. know, to, you, you could, add, if you're the, the, the composer, the artist, you could ask the question, hey, um, is this something that you need me to make a decision on right now because you got a show that needs it this week? Or is this something that's just going in your catalog? And if that's the case, do yeah. I have a few weeks to consult my attorney? Yeah, but, but, but if it is something that, uh, you know, has, has a time-sensitive uh, element, well, like like you said, a TV show that's uh, uh, editing, like, this week, and, they, you know, they, they need to... Uh, they need to edit and, and you know finalize by the end of the week. Then yeah, then maybe say I'll get back to you right away. You know I'll right. get back to you by tomorrow, forty-eight hours. I'll get back to you in enough time that you can make a decision or you know move on to something else. I'm not going to leave you hanging. That'd be the way to, to say it. I think. Uh- our, believe it or not, our time is up. This went by incredibly fast. Um, I really, really, really enjoyed having you on the show. I want to plug the book one more time. It's Rockstar 101. Liz, if you could put the uh, link in the chat room again, I'd appreciate that. Uh, when are you coming back to town, give or take? Do you know? Well, I uh, um, I commute. <laughs> I'm yeah. up in Big Bear, California right now. I also have a place very close to you right. uh, in Agora Hills. So uh, I've been kind of um, commuting every other week. So um, I'll probably sh- should be back uh, down the hill next week. All right. Well, next time, uh, you know, I was going to say next time you're here, let's go out for lunch, but we can't. <laughs> I <laughs> forgot. So, unless it's takeout and we we six feet socialize, so. Yeah, we can go to a sushi place and sit on a curbstone in the parking lot. Um, anyway, uh, enjoy the holidays. Thank you so Thank much you for doing this. Um, I, I'm going to give you a call tomorrow to, about some business stuff. Um, and, man, great having you on. I hope you can come back again because I still have plenty more things I would love to ask you. Well, let's, let's do part two. <laughs> All right. Thank we'll make you, it a trilogy. We'll make it a trilogy. How's that? So. Sounds great. All right. Thank you very much, right. ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mark Ferrari. <laughs> and I'll see all you guys tomorrow for Taxi's Quarantini Happy Hour, 4 o'clock, right back here. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. All right. You're welcome.